Monk, Arizona Wine Podcast by Cody Vladimir Burkett. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Cody, the Arizona Wine Monk. I'm here with Jason Negron from Calveras. Calvera Sellers. Calavera. Calavera Sellers uh, in Pennsylvania. Also a friend of ours from Happy Hour at the Winchester. Um, so this is the first unofficial Happy Hour podcast, not counting the many with James Callahan. So we're talking Chardonnay tonight. And we've got one here from his vineyard via New York grapes, from Weathered Vineyard specifically. And we've also got the Dalla Chardonnay from Arizona Stronghold. And I just realized I forgot the big giant red book again. Because it would have been fun to read that in Byzantine Channel. So tell us a little bit about this wine that we're drinking from Pennsylvania via New York. All right. Well, this wine is uh, from Weathered Vineyards. That's where I help out Rich Woolley. He's the owner and uh, vintner in uh, New Tripoli, Pennsylvania, um, about 15-20 uh, minutes north of Allentown, if you guys aren't familiar with uh, that part of Pennsylvania. Um, in any event, uh, we sourced the grapes from New York, and this is the Naked Chardonnay. So this was, uh, it, it touched no oak whatsoever in the process. And uh, I have some technical bits here from uh, a text from Rich earlier <clears throat> that I can quick run through. I know it's not uh, the uh, real important stuff, but uh, let me get to it. Oh, I um, love the, the technical shit. So. All right. Well, in that case, <laughs> let's talk technical shit. Um, like I said, they're uh, sourced from Seneca Lake, New York, um, harvested in November of last year. Really? 40, yes. So it was a very, very late harvest. Um, they were uh, <clears throat> crushed, destem pressed, and uh, juice was sulfited and chilled for about two days. Um, inoculated with D47 yeast, fermented in stainless steel. Uh, it was then racked off the lees and returned to steel for cold stabilization. Fermentation never completely finished, so it's going to be a little, I don't want to say sweet, but there is about 1% residual sugar in this. It's not too bad. It uh, gives it a nice um, touch. It, it, it almost makes it taste not like Chardonnay, which mm. is part of the appealing quality of this particular wine. Uh, late spring, it was... Uh, Heat stabilized with a small bentonite addition, uh, filtered with a pad filter, uh, sterile filtered upon bottling, and then we uh, waxed it and started to drink it. So, so I'm familiar with cold stabilization. What is heat stabilization? That would be a question for Rich um, because I've only been in the biz for about a year now. So um, it, that's uh, that's an interesting question. Yeah, I've never heard of that. I know cold stabilization. A lot of wineries here in Arizona don't do that. You'll see at the bottom of them little crystals of the tartaric acid. Right, and we do have that in our Chardonnay from last year, and it will probably start to show up in uh, this or the uh, the regular Chard that was aged in oak. Um, and we tell people we call that wine diamonds, and they love it. And uh, it's, what, tartaric acid, so it's not going to hurt you. Yeah, it's exactly. Gonna, it's it's kind of like uh, panning for gold. It's going to stay at the bottom of your glass when you drink it anyway, so yeah, it's kind it's, of a cool little extra. Yeah, and it's one so. of those things that never really bothered me at all. And Yeah, let's crack open the Dalla, too. Okay. So I don't know really any of the technical stuff on the Dalla, unfortunately. Um, I know it's fruit coming from Albiol Memorial Vineyards. Tim White was the winemaker. Then it's got to be good. Um, I think it was mostly steel, maybe some neutral oak. Um, a lot of the stuff is in neutral oak for a little while at Stronghold. Um, neutral oak seems to be a big thing in Arizona. No one's really touching, like, new oak. No one's really doing those big, oaky, Napa-style shards where you do barrel fermentation and then malactic, so you have something that, to me, tastes like burnt butter popcorn. Right, and that's not our uh, aim either. We don't want to do that. We want to kind of make a uh, cleaner, more Chablis-style Chardonnay um, and have it touch oak as little as possible. Um, we feel that the, the, the grapes that we grow in Pennsylvania and that we can source from New York kind of speak for themselves and we don't have to um, enhance it too much with the oak. It just, it, it does the trick on its own. Giving a lot of apple on the nose. And I'm almost sensing that there's a little bit of acidity there too. Does remind me more of that classic French style.
I'm not, I'm not really tasting the residual sugar at all. That's that's nice. You get a lot of fruit in the nose, a lot of uh, fruit forward in the in the palate at the at the front. But yeah, the sweetness kind of um, it smells like it might be really really sweet, but uh, it's not. And that's that's the aim for a lot of uh, Rich's wines, and which is why I want to be a part of something like that in Pennsylvania. Because typically in Pennsylvania. Uh, people's uh, palates in the area kind of drive the the wine style which is a more of a sweeter palate and it's not something that rich or i strive for so um i'm very appreciative of the fact that he designs and, and makes his wines in a way that um will be appealing to the sweet wine drinker because they're almost being fooled into thinking it's a sweet wine because of how uh well it's made and it has such a great nose and such a great fruit forward palate What are some of the challenges you've found with uh, growing in Pennsylvania, other than the the sweet tooth inherent in the native population? Well, I, I don't think the soil is really built for red wine, red grapes rather. Um, we get very cold weather very early, and we have uh, a very late bud break as a result of um, frost in, still in the spring. So it's real hard to grow really good red grapes. <clears throat> and I found that um, the staple grape for Pennsylvania and for Virginia has been the Chamberson grape, which um, not a whole lot of winemakers know exactly how to perfect it and how to do anything really well with it. So that's been some of the stumbling blocks for me, being a, a drier wine drinker, is to find stuff locally. And that's part of my <clears throat> philosophy in wine drinking, wine making, and getting into this business at all is that I'd like to stay local and, and try and find out what's going on in my area, and I hope that more people try and do that. Um, and <clears throat> Rich at Weathered was the first person, um, the first winemaker in the area, that kind of had the same philosophical uh, position and, uh, and uh, place where he came from, from a, a winemaking perspective, where he wanted to make... Um, delicious first of all is what they are and uh really dry classic style wines all from pennsylvania grapes he uh we're sourcing right now because the the vineyard is brand new they've been growing on the site for probably less than three years so they have one estate grown uh grape that we turned into a uh, cayuga riesling wine he called cirrus uh last season um we only pulled about a ton or a ton and a half about one barrel and it sold out almost immediately people loved it it was fantastic it was um, crystal clear and apple on the nose and it was a fantastic summer drinker and we released it around that time and it just flew off the shelves so what are you growing on site other than the Chamberson you were mentioning. No, no, no. He refuses, oh. actually, and I applaud him for this. It's kind of a punk rock thing to do, uh, <laughs> to uh, basically chuck up the middle finger to Pennsylvania and say, I don't need to be on your wine trail. I don't need to give you my money to make sure that the tour bus hits my place. You know, the, the people who know good wine are going to show up anyway, and they're going to drink it and try it and know that it's good and, and, and buy it. Um, so on site, uh, he's currently growing uh, Chardonnay, which we planted last year. Um, a little bit of Sauvignon Blanc, which was planted the year before. Uh, the Cayuga Riesling, which was, I think, this is the third year that it's been planted there. And then he also has a large patch of Cabernet Franc, Merlot, and a little bit of Cab Sav just to give it a shot, just to see what happens. So he also has uh, additional properties that have not been um, planted and cultivated yet, but, uh, you know, that's down the road. and. So you have to be seen what that's gonna what that's gonna hold for us. Yeah. What's the soil like there? I don't really know that much of the status of There's some clay, but for the most part on the top of the hill where he's at, uh it's a lot of shale. So it's uh a little bit of a difficulty planting and hopefully for now, at least for the next year or two, we won't have to worry about planting or replanting. We've had uh two really rough winters in the past two years. And uh, he, he lost a lot of vines, a whole lot of vines, uh, because of how cold for how long it was in, in February of, of this year and, and last year. Um, but yeah, it's it's a difficult thing, and I can imagine the challenges here in Arizona, you know, planting 
in some of the areas because of how dry and, and hard the ground can be. But uh, it's become more of a mechanized process than a manual process just because with the amount of help that we had and the amount of vines we had to plant, you have to bring in a machine that will, you know, uh, kind of like an auger that will corkscrew out holes and then we uh, get as many volunteers as we can and uh, offer up a, a sandwich and a tasting afterwards and they'll uh, come out and help plant. But uh, mostly shale, uh, some clay, and uh, really, really conducive to the white grape. If I were going to go with a red grape out there, my suggestion, this would be just out of nowhere, probably. Um, I would probably go with Baco Noir. I've had some Baco Noir coming from Niagara for the north. Um, it seems to do okay with the cold. seems to do okay in weird soils. No one's really tried it out here, obviously, because it's more of a cold weather grape, but right. it might be a grape that'll uh, work okay out there. Uh, I have to check that out. I've actually never heard of that grape. So I've had one. It was come, coming from Peller, Peller Estates, I think, in uh, somewhere in the Niagara region. If you had your dream vineyard in Pennsylvania, what would you be growing? Um, I would have to say that I'd be growing a lot of stuff that, that people out there already are growing because I know that there's enough history of wine uh, grape growing and, and winemaking in Pennsylvania that um, a lot of the people that have been established for a while must know that those are the things that are going to grow well. I'd love to see something experimental like a Grenache or a Movedra just to see whether or not it would it would ripen uh, appropriately in the, in the fall. Um, but uh, as far as whites go, um, I've seen some Viognier in Virginia. I think it would be uh, a cool exploration to see a Viognier or a Malvasia or even an Albarino. Um, it's probably not as humid as it needs to be in Pennsylvania to grow an Albarino correctly. But um, even incorrectly, I'd like to see what, what Pennsylvania soil would have to offer for a grape like that. And that goes to uh, my belief that um, you, obviously your palate's never wrong. Whatever you like to drink, you like to drink. Um, but I think that locally the people in Pennsylvania have been limited to, um, I don't want to call it a, a narrow-minded philosophy because these are you know small-slash-large business owners who have to pay the mortgage and pay the taxes, and they gotta they got to make a buck. So they know what's going to work. They know what's going to grow. They know what's going to make decent wine, and they know what's going to sell. So they have to do that. Um, experimentally, yes, I would love to see an Albarino. I'd love to see some Spanish varietals. I'd love to see um, more blending going on in Pennsylvania. There's more uh, single varietals out there than there are any sorts of blends at all. And I'm not actually sure why that is. And I, I don't know if it's a, a lack of knowledge or a lack of creativity or um, kind of people being lulled into a sense of, well, you know, uh, I, I make this type of wine, I've made it for 10 years and people buy it, so, you know, why upset that that system that I have going? So, I'd love to see some more blends. Um, I believe that um, Rich has a plan, and again, don't quote me on this one, and don't kill me, Rich, for saying this. Um, there's going to be a Bordeaux blend uh, in the future for Weather Vineyards. Um, I, I believe that our terroir is very similar in profile to some areas of Bordeaux, um, both geographically and uh, the chemical makeup of the soil. So I truly believe that um, it can be done. And I was told by a very wise man that there are four basic tenets of really good winemaking. And if I could run through those real quick. Oh, by all means. Um, the first is you have to have good fruit. And in order to have good fruit, you have to have good soil. You have to have good farming techniques. And I think he's really got that down. Uh, number two is you have to have a good winemaker. Uh, if you don't have a good winemaker, it doesn't matter how good or bad your fruit is, it's going to turn out uh, subpar and, and less than what it possibly could be. Uh, number three is the tricky part. You have to have infinitely deep pockets. Um, and that comes from buying uh, rootstock when everything dies and hiring help to do whatever work you have to do, um, having the right equipment, uh, making sure that you have enough barrels. It just it helps to be a jillionaire to get into this business. Um, and number four is you have to have a story. And I believe that he does. 
And uh, it's a matter of telling that story. And I've seen him in action in the tasting room, and he, he can do that. So he can get these people, these typical Pennsylvania wine drinkers that um, want to have something that's pink and sweet and just whatever shoved in their face. And he can tell them, um, well, why don't you just try and give this a shot? Um, it may not be sweet, but it's going to be very fruity. So your palate and your nose and your senses are going to be fooled into believing that this is sweet. And you might find out that you like drier wines. Um, and those are the four things that you need to be successful in this business. And he's very well on his way to, to getting there. Oh, this is a really fun Chardonnay. It, it is. I love a deceptively, this. It's deceptive finish. You feel like it's gone, and then that finish just kind of stills there and lingers. Mm -hmm. yeah. Which I think is wonderful for a, for a white, especially in the summertime. Um, this is one of those uh, troublesome wines in the summer because you find yourself drinking a little bit more of it than you uh, had intended because it's so uh, crisp and refreshing. And typically when I think of a Chardonnay... I think of that big, you know, heavy oak, or I think of that um, super round mouthfeel and buttery, like over mallow lactic fermented uh, shard that you'll typically accidentally buy at the store and get home and go, okay, well, that it, it seemed like a good idea. Um, and then you either use it for cooking or you let it sit and become vinegar in your refrigerator. Correct. Right. At least that's what it did for me for years, and so I just stopped buying Chardonnay because I assumed that all Chardonnay was the same. And then uh, when I started uh, one of my current sub-projects, uh, i.e. trying a hundred different varietals, and the thought was, you know, try and find it from the origin point. And so I actually tried a, a Chablis. And I was like, oh, I actually like this. <laughs> I mean, it's still not going to be the first thing I grab. But... Right. And I think the first Chardonnay that I tried that was like that was a, uh, it was a site archive uh, Arizona Stronghold uh, from Bonita Springs. And it was a Chardonnay. And in fact, um, the, uh, the girl at the tasting room, whoever it was that day I was there, um, asked me what types of white wine I liked. And I think I specifically told her, well, I don't really like Chardonnay. And her response was, well, why don't you just try this? I'm not going to tell you what it is because it was in an unlabeled bottle. She goes, give this a shot and tell me what you think. Was that Brie? Um, I don't I don't think it was. I, I think it was somebody else um, only because I've, I've, I know Brie very uh, casually, and I don't think it was her. Hmm. But in any event, um, the yeah. wine was delicious. Um, it was a Chardonnay, and I ended up getting a bottle and uh, illegally smuggled it back to Pennsylvania for anyone who's uh, listening to this podcast. Hi, NSA. How are you? <laughs> Sup? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> drank it about a year or two later and uh, was very reminiscent. I, I, it took me right back to the first moment that I tasted it, and it was fantastic and did not taste like the typical uh, Chardonnay that everyone's used to from California. Uh, to this day, I still wonder the story of why exactly that style got so popular in California. Was it just good marketing based after an accident, or what consciously went into trying that style? I mean, I'm, I really haven't done that much research on Chardonnay, mostly because it's not a grape that's really on my radar. It does fun things here in Arizona, but most people would say it's not our best. Um, I wouldn't say it's our worst white. I'm not going to say what I think it is. Columbard. Um, <coughs> Sorry, I'm getting cold. That's a little bit allergy out here. Um, <laughs> but yeah, out here, Chardonnay has that more crisp character that I think is more characteristic of French. And also Italian Chardonnay. Right. It should be treated that way then, too. It shouldn't be oaked like they do in California. If, if it's going to give off characteristics on its own in a particular way, then you should try and, you know, amplify that instead of mute it by uh, throwing oak on it and uh, making it, I don't know. Burnt not, buttered popcorn. Yeah, not taste good. Oh, and if I'm, there is another one uh, from France I had. It wasn't Montrachet. I don't remember exactly where I'd have to go through my 
massive amount of notes, but um, it was from somewhere in Burgundy, which Burgundy is, of course, where Chardonnay originally came from in the first place, uh, for those following along at home with the map um, in, the bed, <laughs> in the Big Red Sacred Wine book, if you are following with the map. Um, originally comes from Burgundy. I'm not sure what the genetic history of it. There's a parent to that grape that's now almost extinct, and it was a parent between that and another grape. And I think they were step-parents. Probably. <laughs> but this is when I really wish I had brought that book, and I meant to, but I was in such a hurry to get Well, it's dark out, so you wouldn't yeah. be able to read it anyway. So well, That's what flashlights are for. Yeah. But I, you know, neither here nor there. But the point is, you know, this is, you know, this reminds me of the more classic Burgundy style, or for that matter, the Arizona style Chardonnays that I've had from Bodega Pierce. I've actually not had the Dalla, weirdly enough. Uh, this will probably come as a shock to those who know how much I drink Arizona wine. Well, I'm sure that Rich would be proud to know that uh, you find it to be French in style. Yeah, it's quite lovely. Actually, gonna pour now the dollar. Like I said I don't know very little about this wine. I'm assuming it's either albiole, but it could be Bonita Springs fruit or a blend of both. Um, I'm assuming neutral oak. Tim White was the winemaker, and I cannot see for the life of me what year this is. It's 2015, Cody. I know what year it is now, but what year is the wine? 2012. <laughs> it's 2012. This is a whole different nose. It's yeah. more apricot versus apple. A little bit almost a fig. And the silence is us uh, smelling the wine, by the way. Or we can just be like... <laughs> that was actually me doing three lines of cocaine, so... By the I'm way, sorry. cocaine and Chardonnay, great wine pairing. Yes. Very good. <laughs> it's got to be Colombian cocaine, though, not Mexican. It's the toir that really yes. matters when you're doing cocaine. You're right. <laughs> Peruvian is the best, but it's so hard to find. I don't like the effects. I just like the smell. <laughs> and this is a little bit more fuller bodied. Yes, very much so. Uh, than the weather vineyards. Um, I can definitely detect a little bit of that neutral oak. Um, it's got that sort of vanilla edge to the palate. And apricots definitely repeated. I can taste a little bit more lactic acid in this than in weathered's. Yeah. I don't think this went purposely through Mallow, but it might have gone through just a little bit. Right. It's also a little older too, so it's probably aged a little bit. Um, yeah, like I said, this is a uh, this is an infant. We we bottled this uh, maybe two months ago, and it went on sale today. I believe today in the tasting room for the first time. Oh, I'm glad to see your teleportation skills worked. There you go. <laughs> is it smuggling for teleporting? No. Well, I figure that the uh, airplane or the car, it's all a time machine. It's just moving at, like, regular speed, though. Uh, so I arrived here, and it was six hours in the future. <laughs> That's what I tell my kids, and they tell me, Shut up, Dad. <laughs> such a geek. There's not as much acidity in here as I was expecting. Compared to um, some of the other Arizona shards I've had. But again, this is also a little older. General rule of thumb I've noticed is that the more acidic a white is, or the more residual sugar there is, uh, the better it ages. I didn't even think to read the back of the label. Yeah, it says lots of stuff on it. and um, Is any of it important technical stuff, well, though? Well, yeah, kind of. This is Welcome to Arizona at the bottom. That's all you need to know. Well, welcome to Arizona. I live here. Reflects their high elevation, hot days, cool nights, blah, blah. Interesting stuff. Yes, we know that. Uh, maybe Jesse, when he gets here, if he gets here in time. In 
fill us in on the details. In. He probably has Tim White on, on the speed dial. He may. I, I know I certainly don't. Oh, this is actually really cool when I put it up to the light from the microphone. It's like techno rave. <laughs> anyway, um, where was I? You no, talked I'm, about wine. Yes, we were trying to talk about wine until yes. I got distracted by techno um, for some weird reason. Which, of course, just weirdly enough, makes me think of Strong Bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, blacklight reactive water bottles. Yeah, it's got this really strong apricot, musty character. It's not a bad musty character. It's not like Brett or anything like that. It's like almost like peach fuzz makes me think of. Yeah, almost unripened yet. Just about to be ripe, peach fuzz. Which may not be an official wine term, but we're going to use it. We're going to take it and run and with it. I know that from my extensive history of uh, harvesting apricots in a. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I didn't ever do that. <laughs> so. Well, you could have fooled. You could have fooled us all. Yeah, I worked for uh, 17 years in the fruit harvesting business. Um before I decided to sell couch insurance and uh, test market uh, positive thinking and, but no, no, I didn't do any of that. Uh, that reminds me of my uncle. He, he used to work in an upholstery factory and then he fell into the machines one day. He's recovered now. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm pumped. Where's the snare drum? It's a snare picnic table, but you know, whatever. There you go. Official text. He'll see what's up in a bit. That's from Jesse, our Winchester father. Our father who art in Winchester. <laughs> Drunken be thy name. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> so, there's a secret group on Facebook that we are members of. Jesse, who is... Often to be found at 48 Wineworks is the godfather of the group. Administor. Administrator. Um, beer and wine geek. Um, he created this group. I, I don't really know why he created it, actually. Because he loves uh, beer and wine and Star Wars and food. Cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely cigarettes. That's an inside joke. Hope yeah. you can breathe today, Jesse. <laughs> so anyway, Jason and I met through Happy Hour with Winchester, and that's why we're here tonight. Another successful internet relationship that has nothing to do with Match.com. <laughs> or romance, for that matter, <laughs> that I'm aware of. <laughs> I like you, but I don't like you like you. No, it's okay. <laughs> I get that a lot. <laughs> well, I think we're both spoken for, so that's okay. This is very true. Amen. Cheers. That glass holds that... I forgot how long this glass holds that tone. <laughs> I'm drinking out of the uh, Dos Cabezas glass. And, and I'm drinking out of the uh, Callaghan glass, which is... Uh, Quite bulbous and uh, beautiful. That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I am, uh, I am digging this Chardonnay. Yeah. How however, I am going to say that uh, um, in a blind taste test, um, I would have to pick the uh, the more um, easier to drink of the two. Which would be the weathered, in my opinion. Um, I think certainly uh, the Arizona Strong Honda has mo more history, more uh, years behind it. It's got three years of aging on this uh, wine that I brought tonight. Um, it's more sophisticated in those ways. But as far as a straight-up uh, drinking a glass of wine on a nice hot night, uh, I don't need to think about it too much. 
Um, and that's not to take away from either of them because I think it's fantastic that you drink a wine that's a couple of years old and it's it's interesting. It's got uh, some very uh, n- nice fruit notes that uh, are hard to describe, which I, I think is great. And it tastes really good. Oh, that's a good stuff. I like I like the weathered stuff. The sorry, uh, my brain just killed over and died. Uh, I like the stuff that you brought as well. It's very crisp. And I agree with you, on a hot summer night, this goes down easier. Yes. Um, but I feel it would be harder to pair with food than this guy. Right. Um, why that is, I don't know. I think it's... Well, I mean, uh, some wines end up being more of a, a standalone drinker than a uh, pair, pair me with food kind of, uh, kind of wine. So I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I don't think, one, you know, one is uh, more important than the other. There are some fantastic, uh, complex, very expensive wines that I've had that I feel are better on their own and uh, would be interfered with if food was brought into the picture. So um, I think that goes both ways on both types of wine. Those are real sound effects. So was the motorcycle or ATV in the background. And the dogs and the gunshots. I didn't hear the gunshots yet. You will. That picture did not work so well. (laughs) Cody is uh, an amateur photographer at this point. Definitely keyword is amateur. Very. Trying to capture the way the light of the microphone uh, reflects in the glass, but at the same time also trying to figure out how to get a photo for the... Ah! Flash! <laughs> Sorry. No! Oh! That was... <laughs> and we're done. Actually, that picture is quite interesting. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. It's me hiding and smiling and... At the same time, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, that takes a lot of skill. I was amused by the uh, amount of lumens that you were throwing at me. Uh, well, it was quite a few, by the I'll, way. I'll try to quit next time. <laughs> so, you've been visiting a lot of the Arizona wineries while you've been here this trip. I, mean, I have. Visited a lot of them on other previous trips in the past. Which yes. Is, and you obviously like what you drink because you're visiting again and drinking again. Drinking again and s- planning on sneaking some stuff back again. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. What have you noticed are the key differences in Arizona wine, say, between Sonoida, here in the Verde, and Wilcox grapes? As kind of an outsider. Oh, wow. I didn't do my homework. Um, well, big point. question. Okay. Big question, but it's Here based on what you're tasting. And go. Um, what I found was uh, the other day when I was down in uh, Sonoida, I, I ran the Redbeard Rally. Um, and uh, big ups to Dos Cabezas for putting that all together. Um, it was a lot of work. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, I think everybody there had a blast. Um, it was for a good cause, and the wines that we tried from everybody that showed up at the race uh, were all fantastic. In fact, somebody brought a sparkling uh, Moscato, which at the time, after a race and having a couple glasses of water to try and uh, rehydrate, was fantastic. Um, Where was the sparkling Moscato from? Um, it or? was it was from a bottle that somebody poured in my glass. I, I couldn't tell you. Um, it may have been from Arizona Hops and Vines, but don't hold me to that. I think that could have been where it was from. In any event, um, that was the first time I had the opportunity to try any southern Arizona wines. Now, that being said, I've had wines from the Verde Valley that were sourced from Wilcox and the Sonoida Elgin regions, and um, not really knowing what the differences were, what I can tell you is, um, on the surface, it appears as though some of the reds um, had a, uh, a richness to them down south that, uh, I don't want to say they don't have up here, but it was a very uh, earthy, 
um, they, they are really nailing Spanish varietals down there. Um, they're just knocking them out of the park. Uh, Movedra, Grenache, Tempranillo um, are fantastic. And Todd Bostock is blending them all in different variations in different wines that are killer. There wasn't one wine that I tried down there that I didn't like. Um, their stuff was completely off the charts. Um, I tried some Rune. I tried some Callaghan. Callaghan was also fantastic. He made a Malvasia that'll kill you. It's so good. Um, when you come back up here, I think that there's more... I don't know if experimentation is the word, but uh, I'm seeing like, uh, you know, Maynard at Caduceus is doing some rosés that some places are not uh, dipping their toes in that water. They're, they're making like one rosé. He's making three. Um, and he's trying different like single varietals and blended varietal rosés. So um, I don't know if it's necessarily a fair comparison to say, you know, north versus south. Um, I think they're both doing wonderful things with the grapes that they both source from their area and from the south and and what have you. Um, it's it's all been very, very good. Um, I just think that the, the one difference that I found overtly was the richness in the reds down south. It was hearty, and it just, uh, when you drank a red wine down there, it just, it kind of gave you a big hug. And... Uh, it just that's all about I have to say about that uh, it's that's all I got to say that's all about I got to say about that it was it was fantastic stuff and uh yeah so I definitely feel that way about Sangiovese in terms of hugs um I'm really looking forward to trying Ken's Malvasia of course but I'm my Malvasia fiend um See, I found that Sangiovese has not been the uh, the, the richest, reddest um, uh, grape and wine for me, though. I found that Movedra and Grenache, and uh, especially Petit Verdot... Um, oh, God, Arizona Petit Verdot is, is incredible. Killer. And it, that, that, and let me speak to that for a moment. Um, when I've tried um, several wines out here, several blends, and it, I, I think it started with Mangus um, and... Lozen, probably for that matter. Um, it had a particular nose right off the bat, which, um, when friends of mine back east asked me to describe it, I said, Well, it just it smells like Arizona. I don't know how to describe it. And what I found was by accident, I found a single varietal Petit Verdot from California um, in a Pennsylvania liquor store, and I, I bought it and tried it. And immediately upon pulling the cork out of the bottle, I got hit with that Petit Verdot nose, and it was, oh my god, I have to look at this bottle. Uh, I, I ran back over to my shelf, and I grabbed a Lozen from uh, 2010, maybe, that I had tried out here, and I brought a bottle back, and I still have one at home, so ha-ha to anybody who doesn't have one still. Um, I don't have a And I believe there is some Petit Verdot in there. There is. It is so pronounced in the nose that that became, for me, the associative quality of what an Arizona wine meant to me because uh, as we all know olfaction is one of the most uh, uh, it's a sense most connected to the brain yes correct and when I smell something it immediately connects me to a place and to a thing and to a feeling and when I smelled that wine from Sonoma since it was 100% Petit Verdot it threw me into this, this tailspin I was like oh my god that smells like Arizona wine because it smelled like Petit Verdot and I know that Kent uh, Callaghan is doing a great job with Petit Verdot down there. Um, Lightning Ridge also has a really great 100% Petit Verdot, which I have a bottle of in my cellar. And, uh, Flying Leap also has got an amazing, amazing one, too, made from Wilcox fruit. That just was absolutely killer. And again, that's a bottle that I'm also hoarding, because I love me some Petit Verdot. Um he also blended some of that Petit Verdot into his Sangiovese, uh, Mark Barris and the gang did. And that was one of the best Sangioveses I've tasted in the state. It was like 98%, well, less than 98%. It was like 90-some percent Sangiovese. And I forget the exact percentage, but there was some Petit Verdot in there. And it was just beautiful. 
Um, I think, you know, when you're speaking of Sangiovese, it does, that's a grape that varies in terms of darkness from one year to the next. Right. I have seen some years where you just cannot get any color from it whatsoever. Try as you might, even if it's the Brunello clone. Oh, pardon me. But last year, um, while I was winemaking for Passion, one of the grapes that came in and that we were making was Sangiovese, and it was dark. And it was like already Brunello-style dark. So again, that's a. I think it varies from year to year, and some, and possibly the clone that you're using too, um, because I don't know what all the clones you're using here and there are. Um, I think Zarpara and Flying Leap are both using the um, Brunello clone, which I think is VCR 006. I could be wrong on that too, so don't quote me. Um, And I know Bowie has a different clone of Sangio and blah, blah, blah. Well, I can tell you that uh, we're doing Clone 96 with the Chardonnay, which is a completely different ballgame. But um, speaking of the, the Sangio and not getting the color, um, is that, uh, and again, this is me trying to educate myself, is that part partly a function of uh, not wanting to leave it on the skins too long because it'll become too tannic? Or just because the, the fruit isn't getting to the place where it needs to be at harvest time? My perspective on that is that it's actually neither because um, I can speak for, I can't speak for what other people are doing, but I can speak for what Passion Sellers did with our Nebbiolo. Um, we let that sit on the skins for almost three weeks, trying to extract any sort of color that we could from it. And it still ended up being fairly pale. Um, and granted, Nebbiolo is still not the darkest of reds, even though it ages well and is super tannic. But when I last saw it, you know, it was still much lighter than the Italian Barolo or Barbaresco that would be in its equivalent in terms of color. What I have noticed with some of these grapes, uh, with Bordeaux grapes and Sangiovese, especially in Arizona, is that the darkness of those wines tends to vary by year, um, by and large. You get a drier year, your Bordeaux grapes and your Sangioveses and possibly your Nebbiolo. Again, I haven't had that much experience with Nebbiolo out here making it or dealing with it, so it's kind of a kind of lumping it in just for lack of evidence to the contrary, one way or the other. Is that those end up lighter and the best way to see this is actually at the vintages right now in Echo Canyon, because both of the vintages there are 2004. Um, there are two Merlots, and there's one from Wilcox from the old Crop Circle Vineyard, um, now Rolling View Vineyard, and there's one from the old Echo Canyon site, which I think is now controlled by Havelina Leap. They've replanted it all. That's a long time ago. Yeah, it was eons ago. I was, I was young back then. So was I. I was young, stupid, naive, and engaged to Hellspawn fiancé. Oh. Hi, Hellspawn fiancé. It just turned south. No, not really. She's, she's at this point, more of a punchline than anything else, so. Um, despite all the wonderful things she did to me, but that's neither here nor there that we won't talk about. Because, um, ooh, <laughs> look at the wine. Um, what I've noticed is that and looking at what I can find of weather data from 2004, is that it was a wetter year in the Verde than it was in Wilcox. And so it makes, you know, and then the Merlot from the Verde is lighter than the Merlot from Wilcox. Um, now, granted, with all the shuffling and echo, it's possible that things got shifted and notes got lost or miscommunicated and maybe it's a state something else or maybe it's a different vintage but the point is the technology was way different back then too yeah <laughs> this is also very true uh, but it does seem to bear out this theory that from what i've noticed and this affects mo this does not affect petit verdot i've noticed petit verdot is always dark regardless but it seems to affect cabernet sauvignon Cabernet Franc, Merlot, Nebbiolo, Sangiovese, and to a lesser extent, Grenache. Is that all? That I've noticed. Yes, I know. That, that's a long <laughs> list. But, 
Um, but it doesn't seem to affect. If you're Tempranillo. taking notes at home, yeah, it doesn't seem to affect Ruvedra. It doesn't seem to affect Tempranillo. Doesn't affect Petit Verdot. Doesn't it? Doesn't affect. Um, oh, my brain just killed over and died. Syrah so much. It's like the the other one, the other big Arizona red. Thur. Maybe I'm drinking too much. No, you're not drinking enough. Clearly, I agree. Let's Cheers. have more. Which reminds me, actually, of this concept. Um, before I get distracted, I need to finish the thought that I was getting at. By all means. Point is, I've noticed that more monsoon rains mean lighter wines. Why this is, I'm not sure. My guess is that maybe these rains are and they are associated with cloud cover, and the grapes are putting less pigment into the grapes. Or it could be an increased uh, hydration in the grape, lowering the bricks at harvest time, which then lowers the... Yield, or I'm sorry, the uh, the uh, the sugar, which then lowers the alcohol content, which may then affect the tannic quality and or full bodiedness of the grape. I'm well, just, here's the thing. I'm just the spitballing flavor, here, folks. Well, here's the thing: the flavors are just as rich and fulfilling, and it's just as full bodied. So on the mouth, it feels the same, and tastes. Largely the same. There are some minor differences, but the color is the only thing that seems to be affected. Why this is, I, I'm theorizing that maybe cloud cover leads to less phenolic compounds in the grapes because, oh, more cloud cover. We don't need to sun tan ourselves or whatever grapes do. And this is totally bullshitting here, so I could be entirely wrong. <laughs> Not a biologist. I just drink the wine, I don't grow it. Um, or a botanist. Botanist, that's what. Damn it, Jim! I'm not a bot. I'm a. Damn it, Jim! I'm a sommelier, not a botanist. <laughs> um, but the point is, it does seem to be that on a wetter year, the grapes and therefore the wines tend to be lighter, even though the flavor is still as full-bodied and right. the wine is still as full. -bodied. So then, what are we complaining about? It's just Californians whoops. come in and they see some of the cab solves that and we have in the tasting weak. room. And they expect it to be weak because it's like I've had one person actually laugh in my face and go, "Oh, is this a Cabernet Sauvignon Rosé?" <laughs> it's like, oh, "Fuck you, Napa! I'm gonna punch you in the fucking face." <laughs> I mean, "Fuck you, who?" I've never heard of that place. Yeah, Napa. That's that's where auto parts come from, right? Yes, as a matter of fact, it is. Oh. I bought an air filter from them. I hear their air filters are great, but their Cabernet Sauvignon is terrible. Terrible and over oaked and. But it's available for uh, fourteen different years of cars. Yes. Wait, the Cabernet Sauvignon is available for fourteen years of cars? No, the air filter. Oh, I was yeah. going to say that would be a car powered by wine. Just yeah, I walked sounds... into Napa Auto Parts and I said, "Oh, I'd like an '08 uh, air cleaner for my Volkswagen." <laughs> they didn't get the joke. Probably not. I'm, I'm not terribly surprised. Yeah, it was some dude named Jim, and he went, what? Well, here's the thing. They know immense details about cars, but they don't know anything about wine, so... Well, that's not to say that they're uneducated folk. Oh, totally. I mean, I can't put together half of the shit in a car anyway. Exactly. So they're, in that sense, far more educated than I am. Way more. I mean, I've only had to change my tire once. And right, but they if they told Screamed me, and pitch a fit the whole time. Yeah, and if they told me a car joke... I'd probably get it. <laughs> I don't know. That seems to be driving us away from the point. It's okay. We're Ooh. talking about lighter colors and Cabernet Sauvignon Rosé, which I think is hilarious. Yeah, the, these people came into the tasting room a while back. and uh... Can I point out real quick that it is... We're sitting outside, by the way, for this podcast, and it is a beautiful, mostly clear night here in... Uh, uh, Cottonwood, Arizona, and there are about six billion stars up there. I see the Big Dipper, and uh, I have seen a few shooting stars. I haven't broken into the podcast to announce it because by the time you announce it, they're gone. And they must be coming from the direction behind me. So they are, and they're going to them. the whatever direction that is, kind of the north-ish. That's not north. That uh, is. That's south. Stop it. It is not. Well, it's towards Mingus Fountain, which is kind of south. I reject your reality. And substitute your own? And substitute my own. Well, north is that way because that's where the peaks are. Okay. San Francisco peaks, so this is sort of south. Okay, so kind of west. 
Yeah. How about that? Yeah, southwest. All right. I'll go with that. Starting to say southwest? South. Um, so, in any event. Anyway, these people came into the tasting room, and this was back when you had the Clemenceau cab. Or the Clemenceau? Depending on how you pronounce it. <laughs> um, Clemenceau, Clemenceau, tomato, tomato. My French is atrocious. I only took one year of it. Actually, one semester of it, and then I just got tired of it. Um, and they come in, and they I pour it in the tasting room, and they're like, Oh, this is light! This is super light! What is this? A Cabernet Sauvignon Rosé? <laughs> We're from Napa. Cab is so dark in Napa. And it's like... You gave him the slow clap? I, I actually did. Bravo. And it's just like, congratulations, but we're not in Napa. We're in Arizona. We do things differently. And you're going to sit down, shut up, stop mocking our wines. And, well, not necessarily stop mocking them, but you're going to stop snarking about our wines and get to know them. Because you should get to know and drink everything locally when you can. Um, which is one of the reasons why I'm also a big component of, proponent of Arizona wines. Is Not only do I like them, I like to eat and drink as locally as I can. Uh, when possible, and uh, that's the way it was historically long, long ago, and it gets you more of the essence of a place, I feel. But, you know, maybe that's just me being hoity-toity in my own way, but... We're a hippie. No. It's a joke, relax, all you hippies. But hippies aren't going to listen to this podcast, so... Well, they might. <laughs> uh, I would be, yes, let, let's just... I may have a beard like a hippie, but, you know, you're talking to, the, you know, like the only Eastern Orthodox Christian in the entire Verde Valley, so... No chip on his shoulder, either. Nope. About that. Someone's got to do it. So tell me about the Easter Bunny in Orthodox... Uh... <laughs> the, e- the Easter Bunny. <laughs> uh, the Easter Bunny is not a thing for us. Thank um, you. All right. Um, I'm just messing with you. Nah, I'm so am I. But anyway, going back ten conversation threads ago to what I was starting to say before I distracted myself to go back on topic. Um, speaking of needing more alcohol. Um, hi, ADHD. Um, Terry Pratchett, or I should say Sir Terry Pratchett, one of my favorite authors, he describes this concept called knurd. The idea is that there are some people who are so sober... Wait, did he write Fight Club? He did not. Okay, sorry. Um, that was Chuck... Kalanuk? Kalanuk? Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, there are some Sorry, people I'm who just are... trying to distract you at this point. <laughs> it's not as hard as it seems, trust me. Um, I assure you, I can get distracted. See? See, you're working. You're, you're, you're doing it right now. You, you bastard. He doesn't notice. Yes, I do. <laughs> anyway, he describes this concept in one of his books called Knurd. The idea that there are some people who are naturally so sober... That in order to function with the rest of society, they need uh, at least three glasses worth of booze in order to be on an even keel with everyone else. Which Wait, is... I didn't know this guy knew me. I know, right? That's kind of how I feel, too. Cody is uh, currently drinking lots of wine. It's good wine. I actually thought about bringing a California Shard kind of as a comparison point. Um, that's kind of really, like a punchline. That's what it would have been. <laughs> I was like, hey, do I want to really waste that money on something that I know that neither of us are going to like? Uh, nah. Let me think about that. Nah. When I can, you know, save that money and get something really, really awesome later. Like, like three double cheeseburgers. I could get three double cheeseburgers <laughs> for the price of a, a Napa shit in the whole Chardonnay. A shit in a. That was uncalled for. No, it was not. Oh. We've got two good Chardonnays in front of us. We, we do. Don't want to offend them. They're okay. Well, one of them is mature enough to deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It'll be is all right. Is your glass empty, by the way? It is. And I would love some of uh, that stuff you're holding there. Try and hit the glass, though. I am. It's not pouring on the side. That's a fat pour. You're a good tasting room you guy. You didn't tell me to stop. <laughs> I did not. 
And that is my fault. Clearly. I'm still on East Coast time, so it's uh, not a problem. I'm on, obviously, West Coast time, but not only that, um, I do have to work tomorrow, but uh, not until, you know, 10.30. Yeah, that's like a million hours from now. Only a million, though. Yes. You gotta worry. I mean, if it was a bajillion hours, then I could, you know, get entirely shit-faced and not worry. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, I thought for a second the Border Patrol showed up. It's okay. They're not here. (laughs) We're a little far from the... That that border stop in Sonoida. Yes, let's talk about that. (laughs) Let's talk about that. And uh, if I can give any of you a background into who I am... uh, I, let's just say that without revealing entirely who I am and what I do, I, I'm involved in the uh, uh, enforcement of laws business, and um, part of what I do involves uh, stopping people in the middle of the road in the evening, and you can let your imagination go wild with that. I was stopped on my drive north from Sonoida yesterday um, at approximately quarter after seven in the morning, and... Uh, a young man dressed up in his whole Border Patrol uniform stopped me, and I rolled down my window, and I said, good morning, and he said, good morning. And um, he asked me how I was doing. I said I was doing fine. He uh, took a little glance in my uh, front seat, in my back seat, using the plain view doctrine, and then he said, uh, have a good day. And I said, thank you, and I drove away. Then I realized how ineffective the Border Patrol is <laughs> based upon that inspection. I could have had a uh, family of five in my trunk, and uh, he didn't know or he didn't think to ask or whatever. Here I am, a Pennsylvanian, uh, driving a rental from New Mexico that I picked up in Phoenix, driving north from Sonoida, which has nothing to do with any of that. <laughs> and I'm fucked, because they're coming for me tomorrow. So you're not an illegal immigrant. You're fine. Uh, let me. Not, no, I'm not. I'm not. You, you are also <laughs> my my family uh, legally uh, came to the country in uh, the very uh, early ish 1950s from Puerto Rico. Uh, moved up through the states and uh, eventually settled down in Pennsylvania. That that, is, that half of my family. Which raises a very interesting question: If you're immigrating from a new Mac, from a American territory, which Puerto Rico technically is, mm-hmm. does that make it illegal? No, it does not. Because yeah, you're moving from an American territory to... Correct. Uh, Arizona's weird. I, I'd, I honestly get upset at a, lot, a fair amount of the politics that go on here in Arizona. Are we going there? Are we going no, into not, politics? Okay. This is the let's just up. Let's just go there for a minute. Going there for a minute because I think it's stupid because it gives Arizona a bad rap. Because people assume that all of Arizona is that way, and it's really not. And that's that's all I gotta say about that. It's really that. just like those two guys down there. Yeah, it's the, the two guys <laughs> yeah. that, are, that are making those the two bus, guys. You know, Jimmy and what's his name? Uh, Joe. Jimmy and Joe. Yeah. Fuck those guys. Fuck those guys. <laughs> I feel like the fig notes. Are more pronounced after it sits out in the air for a while. Yeah, the as the dala opens up, it gets more figgy, more peachy. The apricot notes seem to fade a little bit. There's still no apple or any like crisp right. fruit like that. That's what we got in the PA stuff. The PA system. Yes. Which is not a system. public address system. The Pennsylvania. I'm sorry for all you people that don't know. Uh, Pennsylvanians call Pennsylvania PA. So, so although speaking of politics, let's yes. let's talk about the crazy alcohol politics of Pennsylvania. Let's do that. Tell us about it. Um, it sucks. <laughs> um, the only time I can have an Arizona wine is when I can buy a uh, bottle or three that I order from the Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board directly from Arizona Stronghold, which is currently the only uh, licensed Arizona winery that is allowed to distribute to Pennsylvania. 
And they can't sell it to me. They can only sell it to the state of Pennsylvania, who can then sell it to me. Uh, because they have to collect their Johnstown flood tax uh, on all wine and liquor sold in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, I'm going to go into a little bit of history here, and all you historians can curse me because I've had like four or five glasses of wine, so go. Uh, Back in the early 1900s, without specific dates, there was a flood in uh, Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania enacted the Johnstown Flood Act on, or the flood tax on alcohol. Um, I believe it was a 10% tax on all alcohol sold in the state in order to rebuild the town because it was decimated by a flood. This is back before they had like uh, cable TV and cell phones and night games and stuff. They didn't know. So they taxed liquor and booze. Um, so they taxed everybody and they rebuilt the town. And then they never repealed the tax. In fact, they increased the tax to 18%. So when I buy a bottle of Jack Daniels, I can only buy it at the state store. And I pay X dollars for it. If I cross the border a half hour away in New Jersey, I pay X minus 18% for that same bottle of booze because there's no Johnstown Flood Tax Act on it. Um, Why is that? Hmm, I don't know. Because uh, they drop all this money into a governmental slush fund for their state representatives to fly to Washington, D.C. for whatever it is that they do there. Instead of driving three hours, they got to fly. Okay, that's fine. Um, And stay in hotels there. And, uh, all right, I'm going to get off my soapbox so I don't get fired when I get back. But uh, it is illegal for Pennsylvanians to order wine or liquor or beer, for that matter, from any state in the Union, just about any state in the Union, and have it shipped directly to them because the state then cannot collect their tax on your liquor. Um, And what that has done is it's turned me into a coyote and I have to uh, come out to Arizona as often as possible, which I love and I'm not ashamed to say that I do it as much as I can. Um, And I bring stuff back for myself, not for sale, not for any other reason, not to share with people, just to share with myself at home. But yes, Pennsylvania is backwards. You can only buy liquor and wine at a state-run store. They operate all of that stuff. And uh, part of me has researched being in the law enforcement business. uh, This thing called, I don't know what it's called, something like RICO and uh, racketeering. and I don't want to get too specific about it, but um, when... A particular faction holds an entire monopoly on a particular thing. I think that the government as a whole, uh, nationally, federally, has said, that's probably not a good idea. In fact, we shouldn't do that. But uh, it's funny. Pennsylvania still does that. And uh, we all sit by uh, on our on our couches, and uh, every time we need to go buy a bottle of something or a case because we can't buy a six-pack, God forbid... A six pack of beer anywhere. We have to go to a distributor and buy a whole case of whatever, not knowing whether or not we like it. They collect their taxes, and uh, that's what we do. And I'm way off on a tangent, but yes, Pennsylvania, fuck you. Cheers. Cheers to that. <laughs> Very glad that my family, who is from, or I should say my mother's side of the family, is from Northumberland. Uh, Northumberland, Sunbury, Shemokin Dam. Really glad that my mom Shemokin. fled. Shemokin. Awesome. She fled when she was literally 18 and drove out here. And That's the way to go. So I didn't have to grow up in, in that environment where my palate would not be able to really develop in the same way um, out here like it has, which is awesome because Arizona produces some good wines. I'm not sure that I would like most of what Pennsylvania has to offer. Great wines. Don't sell yourself short. Okay. Great wines. Which is delicious. And I don't know what that is, but it's kind of scary. There's a weird sound happening behind us. And it's either the chupacabra or we're going to be abducted by aliens in about five seconds. Uh-oh. Well, 
continue on while I get the flashlight. All right. I'm also flashlighting because it's pretty fucking scary. Yeah, that sounds like something... Not to be a, a girl, but I'm sitting out in the desert um, in the dark, and I don't know what the hell that is. <laughs> well, that's weird. My brightest flashlight disappeared uh, from my phone. Well, that's not creepy at all. Well, that's because it's like typical for a horror movie where right before you get killed. <laughs> <laughs> well, the brightest side, we've got decent wine before we died Yeah. in the desert. Hmm. Can you hear the dogs? I'm. I can. I'm, I'm really kind of scared right now. Don't worry. We'll throw something at them. Empty wine bottles? Yes. Well, we have an empty wine bottle right now. Oh, there's some Pennsylvania Chardonnay in there. There is indeed. So, cheers to uh, Arizona. Drink me. And on that note, we should probably cut this off because... I have no idea what time we're at, and we are getting... Very dark. I was going to say drunk, but dark also works. And drunk. <laughs> dark and drunk. So until next time... Does your glass have wine still? Good. It does. Okay. Until next time, this is Cody Vladimir Burkett, the Arizona Wine Monk, with Jason Negron from... I'm going to butcher it again. We just call it Weathered Vineyards, because that's where vineyards. I'm coming from. Yep. Salute.